So we're going to read um, this last church, and so we're going to start at verse 14 in chapter 3. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. Oh, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Rachel. Uh, nice that you put that pressure on me to explain Revelation. Half an hour, you'll all understand Revelation. Um, if you, I mean, if you are new, uh, we've been going through this series called Seven Letters to Seven Churches, which is basically um, the first part of the book of Revelation where Jesus himself writes uh, these letters to seven real historic churches, some of them smaller than us, some of them much bigger than us, uh, but real churches nonetheless in uh, what is now Western Turkey, so a real place, real churches, real place. Today's our last letter to the last church, this church in Laodicea, a real place. We have a map, here it is. Um, so Laodicea, right down at the bottom here, kind of the most easternly of all the churches, uh, the, 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 the messenger, the, the postman, he's gone, he started in Ephesus, he, he went to Patmos, got this letter from John who's on this island, and then he goes to Ephesus and has went around all the churches, and this poor guy had to sit there and listen in each of these churches while the pastor read out this letter from Jesus, and some of them were, were hard to listen to, and so maybe he was like, don't shoot the messenger, I don't know, um, but today he goes to Laodicea. Um, Laodicea is uh, about 45 miles south uh, east of Philadelphia, so he's, he's probably had a good few days walking there to get there. Uh, maybe he had a horse, I don't know. Um, but they were, uh, they were this wealthy uh, city. Laodicea was extremely wealthy. Uh, they were well-dressed people. They had, they had accomplished a lot. But Jesus in this letter, and is, Rachel's right, it is one of the most famous uh, letters in this series, um, Jesus basically tells him, I don't, I don't care about your accomplishments. In fact, he says, you make me sick, which is not exactly what we want Jesus to hear, is it? We don't, don't exactly want to hear Jesus say to us, you make me sick. See, they'd, they'd done so well in their, on their own that they had grown apathetic. They had grown lazy. They, 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 wow. They had, uh, 
This is like, sounded like it was underwater there for a second. It was great. Uh, they had everything that anyone could ever want in life, every luxury, but they had stopped depending on Jesus. They thought they didn't need him. We'll see that later on. I, I don't need anything, they said. Their affluence had led to apathy. Their comfort had led to complacency. And Jesus rebukes their self-reliance. It's their self-reliance that he goes after. And he reminds us that no matter how wealthy we are or no matter how comfortable we are or maybe your dependence is on your, your relationships or your marriage or your friendships or your family, no matter how comfortable we are in our own circumstances, we need to never stop relying on Jesus. Just as, as, just as, as Tom reminded us, leading us this morning, that, that, that we can't ever stop relying on Jesus. Because the, the, the message of the gospel is that we need him, right? That's at the very, very core of it. The gospel is that, 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 I'm, uh, that I'm a sinner, that I'm born in sin, that, 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 and that I need salvation, but I can't do anything to help myself. And so the only way to receive salvation is just to depend on Jesus. That's the core of the gospel message. So, so here's, the, here's the major theme of this letter. And, and if you like, it's the big idea of our sermon this morning. We, when we lose our dependence on Jesus, we lose the heart of the gospel. When we lose our dependence on Jesus, we lose our heart of the gospel. Hebrews 12 says that, that, that Jesus is the, the author and the finisher of our faith. That is that he, he's the source of it, but he also completes it. In other words, the, the gospel gives us life, but it's also the gospel that keeps us alive. And, and man, I'm desperate and you've no idea how much I pray um, for us as a church that we never stop depending on Jesus. Um, and maybe you want to join with me in doing that in, in our prayer times, and we'll just keep praying that we never stop depending on Jesus. So in that vein, I'm going to pray now. Again, we can never pray too much, and, and I'm going to ask for God's help as we seek to understand what God has sent to us this morning through these words of Jesus to this church. Father, uh, we need your help. Uh, we, we, every time we open the Bible, you're speaking to us, but, but our own attitudes to it, our own minds are clouded with distraction and, and um, our own uh, sinfulness and our own opinions and, and our own desires. And Lord, we really need you to just speak clearly to us this morning. That's what we mean. Um, and just as my voice is, is being carried on my breath, would, would, would your voice be carried to us in your breath, the Holy Spirit, this morning? Um, and really show us what you're saying to us. May we uh, leave this place changed because of it, not just hearing another message, but actually have our lives changed because of what you've said to us this morning. And Lord, may it not be my words, but your words this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so most of, if you know me, um, one of Liam's favorite things about me is I grew up in Balmina. He loves about, Liam loves people from Balmina, don't know why. Because uh, he has good taste. I grew up in the country outside Balmina, and like all good country boys, uh, I was desperate to learn to drive as soon as possible, right? That's what you do. Because, well, I live miles away from everything. And so when I was 16, as soon as I was 16, maybe before I was 16, got my provisional uh, license uh, sent away for. And then before I turned 17, I uh, had driving lessons booked, had the, the test all sorted, and um, everything was all in pl pl place. But also, like a lot of country people, I had been driving for years before I even was 16. So at that time, I was working on a farm, and I would drive Jeeps and tractors, and basically, anyone had four wheels and an engine, I would drive it. Um, and so when it came to my driving test, I thought there was no way I could ever fail. No way. Like, how could I fail? Like, I can, you know, I can drive anything. Um, 
I was going to make a joke about how I'm still a good driver, but Healy's here, so I won't. Um, <laughs> but here's what it was. My confidence in my own abilities had led to complacency. And so the day of my driving test came, and uh, I went out on my test and was driving around with the instructor, and I was so confident, I was like chatting away to him, like we were just a couple of mates, like just 17-year-old punk, arrogant kid, uh, just chatting away to this guy, like, all right, how's the family, blah, blah, blah. And um, I was making sure I was doing all the mirror signal maneuver stuff as well. But then when I got back to the test center, I was sure that I passed, and he said, the good news is you only got one minor fault. And I was like, well, of course, like I could do this with my eyes closed. And he said, but the bad news is you got one major fault, and so I have to fail you. And I couldn't believe it. I was like, what? Like, how? So I said, I was kind of angry because I was an idiot back then. And uh, I was like, well, what did I do? Uh, and basically what happened was it was a rainy day and my back window was, was all messed up and I drove off at the start of the test without waiting for that to clear and that's a dangerous thing to do. But basically, in my arrogance, I had forgotten the basics. That's what was going on. And, and maybe you've had a similar experience. Like It's a terrible thing when you think you're doing something really well and actually you find out you failed. So if you ever... Uh, had a job interview and you thought, my, yeah, like I came across really well in that and then you don't get the job or you've done an exam and you think, I aced that and then you fail. And this was the attitude of the Laodiceans, this church. They thought they were all that. They thought they had it sorted, right? They, they had made a good life for themselves. They were rich. They were comfortable. And then they get this letter from Jesus and he says, you make me want to vomit. That's literally what this says when he says in verse 16, I will spit you out of my mouth. It's, 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 it's the Greek word that literally means to eject from the body, like it's vomit. You make me sick. Laodicea was incredibly wealthy, as I mentioned, as a city. Um, there were two important, really important trade routes that met there, and, and because of that, uh, they, had, they brought a lot of trade and wealth, and so they had amazing architecture, and a, they had this, one of the biggest arenas in the ancient world, and, 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 and really their wealth was based on these three industries. They had a textile industry, um, so there's this famous, in fact, now from that region, a similar kind of thing, um, they had the soft black wool. And it was really, really fine, like, like cashmere kind of thing. And, and it was famous throughout the whole Roman Empire. So anywhere you went, if someone was dressed in, in Laodicean clothes, like, people were like, wow, you must have a bit of money. You know, it was a state symbol. And then they were a banking center as well. Because of all the trade that had come in, they had banks established there. They made coins there. They had gold depositories, all this kind of stuff. And then also, uh, they had a really big uh, medical industry. So Laodicea had one of the, the best medical schools in, in, in all of the ancient world. It was really famous for, in particular, for this eye salve that they made, this stuff that you put in your eyes and it would heal eye injuries and infections and, and irritations and all that kind of stuff. And so these three things really put Laodicea on the map. It made them rich. It was an extremely well-off, prosperous city. It was so well-off, in fact, that in AD 60, um, the city was completely destroyed by an earthquake, lots of earthquakes in this region, and it was so wealthy that they rebuilt the entire city without any help from the government, without any help from Rome. Rome didn't send them any other, and in some of the other cities we've been to, um, the same thing happened, and, and Rome actually helped them rebuild the city, but Laodicea didn't need that. They just didn't need any help. And one of the things that's common in all these letters, and, and we're going to see this more next week as we wrap it all up to, together, um, is that each of the churches tend to take on some of the characteristics of the city that they're part of. 
So this is a city that didn't need any help. And in verse 17, we see that the attitude of this church was, I need nothing. Jesus says, you say, I need nothing. They had become just like the city we're in. And one of the challenges we're going to come back to next week is, what characteristics of our city do we take on that we need to be aware of? And just like that city that needed no help, they didn't see their faults. This was a church that really needed Jesus' intervention. Man, they're about to get it. And so this letter follows uh, the same uh, structure as we've seen uh, in the other letters. Jesus starts with this authoritative introduction. Authoritative introduction. So look at verse 14. If you go, keep your Bible open or your app open or whatever it is, um, Jesus says in verse 14, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, that is, to, to the church, he said, to the, I'm writing this to a representative of the church. To the church in Laodicea, write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. One of the things I love about these letters is that, that, that Jesus introduces himself to each one of these churches in a way that they need to hear. I, I, I just love the grace of Jesus in that way. It's like, you, you know when, when Jesus after Jesus' resurrection, on, his, on resurrection morning, Mary's in the garden and she needs to see Jesus and Jesus just appears to her. It's like, I'm going to appear to my people the way that they need to hear me, the way that they need me. It's just the grace of Jesus. And here he introduces himself and he, and he says, uh, there's, he, he, he describes himself in, in three ways. Firstly, he says, uh, I am the amen. Jesus is the amen. Amen, amen, whatever way you want to say it. I don't think it really matters. Um, this word "amen" in Scripture is a way of—it just a way of saying yes, right? It's a way of saying I wholeheartedly agree with this. May this be so. That's what it means when we say "amen" at the end of a prayer. We're saying, Lord, could, could this just be could, the thing we've asked for? May this be. But here, in, in this letter, is the only place in the Bible where the "amen" is a person. See, Jesus doesn't just say amen. He is amen. He is let it be so. Jesus is the confirmation. He's the validation. He's the authentication of all that God has said and promised that he will do for his children. Every promise of God is fulfilled in Jesus. All the promises that God has made to us in his word, all through, all through this book, all the prophecies, all the Old Testament promises, all the New Testament promises, everything God has said that he will do for us, he does through Jesus. Jesus is the, may it be so. Jesus says, this is going to be so. We see this in 2 Corinthians 1. It's verse 20, if, you're, if you want to look it up later, you're taking notes. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20. It says, uh, Paul writing to that church, he says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. This is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. All the promises, all the promises of God find their yes in him. Jesus is the confirmation of God's promises. And that's why when we say amen, we're saying let it be so in Jesus. Whatever God has promised to do will come to pass because of who Jesus is and what he has done. Now let me explain how that works because maybe you're like, well, that doesn't really make sense. It's not because Jesus says amen, but because through his death and resurrection, he has defeated anything that would stand in the way of God's purposes coming true, right? So Satan, the power of sin, wants to defeat all of God's purposes, but in his resurrection, Jesus says, that's defeated. So in his resurrection, Jesus has proved that all the promises of God will come true. 
This is why he is the Amen. And through his death and resurrection and ascension, Jesus has embodied Amen. He has embodied, let it be so, Lord. It will be so, Lord, because look. And this is how he introduced himself to this church. And secondly then, he's the, Jesus says that he is the faithful and true witness. The faithful and true witness just means that you can depend on his word. He's trustworthy. You can take him on his word. Everything that he says is completely dependable. But also, it's interesting that he doesn't say, I'm just faithful. He says he's the true witness. Now, this word witness um, is actually the same word in Greek uh, for martyr. Someone who, whose testimony actually gets them killed, right? That's what a martyr is. Someone who, who dies for, for what they say and what they believe. And that's true of Jesus, isn't it? Jesus declared and lived the truth of the gospel. And he died for it. It cost him his life. And this is why Jesus says to them in verse 18, he's like, you can listen to my counsel. Like, listen to my counsel. Because what I'm saying is, 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 is trustworthy. You guys need to listen to me and you can believe me because everything I say is trustworthy and true. And actually, it's going to happen because of who I am. I'm the amen. So he is the amen. He is the, the faithful and true witness. And then thirdly, in verse 14, Jesus is the beginning of God's creation. Now, I need to clarify something because you can read that and you could think, well, was he the first one to be created? But let me be really, really clear. Jesus was not created. Jesus is the, the second person of the Trinity. The Trinity is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is the Son. And, and there never was a time when he did not exist, and there never will be a time when he does not exist. That's a little bit of doctrine for you there this morning. Je Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is eternal. He never was created. But what Jesus does mean by saying that he is the beginning of God's creation, it means that he's the source. He's the origin, if you like. Colossians 1 tells us this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in, and in him all things hold together. It goes on later to say that, that he, is, he is also the head of the church. Jesus is the ruler of creation. He's the creator of creation. He's the one that spoke creation into being. He's, he's the head of his church, and he sustains creation. Even right now, Jesus, think of, of all the, the, the cells in your body that you can't see, sustained by Jesus. All, all the, 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 the stars and, and galaxies and, and mind-boggling stuff in space, Jesus holds it and sustains it, keeps it alive, keeps it going. But the problem is that I think what happened in Laodicea and I think often happens with us is that we reduce Jesus to be less than this, don't we? Like, we don't really think of Jesus like this. Honest, if, you know, if we're honest with ourselves, even when we're praying, like we, in times of need or something's hard, we need something, right? We, do we pray to this Jesus or do we pray to like a lesser version of Jesus that we've created for ourselves? Jesus, some, just some nice guy or, or maybe some like lesser God. It's as if we, we pray, but we really don't believe who Jesus says he is. But what if we grasped in our hearts this Jesus? What, what if we really grasped in our hearts the Jesus who is the fulfillment of God's promises, the Jesus who can never go back in his word, the Jesus who created everything and, and sustains everything? Well, how, how would that change our lives? 
What if we live knowing our past and present and future are secured by the one who spoke the universe into being and he sustains it by his power? I don't even know what that means. He sustains it by his power, but I know it's true. I know that he keeps it. What if? Just think about how your life would be different, right? How, how would your, our lives be different if, 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 if we saw Jesus, if we received, if we believed Jesus in this way, if, if we accepted this Jesus to be true? Think about how, how all the things you worry about would be different. All, all, the things, all the ways you feel discontent or let down or, or even all the things you're excited or happy about. How would those things be different? And the point is, let's never not depend on Jesus. Let's never stop depending on Jesus. And, and, and I, I pray that, that we can catch this vision of Jesus, that we can see the real, true Jesus. And next week, we're actually going to go back to chapter 1 of Revelation, and we're going to spend time looking at this vision of Jesus, and it's going to be amazing. And that's just the start of the letter. That's just one verse. He started this letter. And Jesus said, guys, you've forgotten who I am. You've left me behind. You stopped depending on me. Let me remind you who I am. And then Jesus moves on to this all-knowing evaluation. Jesus is all-knowing and, and he sees his church. And, and this is what he says in verses 15 to 17. He says, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. That's a famous bit. Would that you were either caught or ho- cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus doesn't have anything positive to say about this church. You're like, oh, here we go again, like another negative, <laughs> another negative sermon. But I don't think it's negative at all. See, maybe uh, you, you've, uh, you've misunderstood, or, or I think this is one of the most misunderstood portions of Scripture. Um, maybe you've heard this as Jesus saying that he would rather you weren't a Christian at all than being a lukewarm Christian or being a mediocre Christian, right? I, if I'm honest, that's how I grew up being taught this passage, that, that Jesus somehow would, would like it better if I hated the gospel than just was indifferent to the gospel. But that's not true. How could Jesus ever say that he would prefer somebody was not a Christian over being a Christian? That, that's just that's antithetical to everything that's in the, in the Bible, it's like, like, like Jesus could somehow say that there's no room in the kingdom for, for struggling Christians. That's just not Jesus. Jesus, God says in, in Isaiah that, that the bruised reed he will not break and, and, the, and the smoldering wick he will not extinguish. These, this idea of these things that are tender and struggling. Jesus says, no, these are the people that I, these are the people that I nourish and care for and protect. Jesus specializes in struggling Christians. He's not saying I'd rather you weren't a Christian. Second Peter tells us that, that Jesus is patient, that he doesn't wish that anybody should perish, but that, that everybody would come to repentance. So there's no way that he's saying that, that he would prefer that these lukewarm Christians weren't Christians at all. So what is he saying? Okay, so uh, every now and again we'll come across a piece in the Bible where it's difficult to understand or it's not immediately obvious what it's saying. And I think this is one of those places. And sometimes, or a lot often, it's very helpful to ask the question, how would the first audience have heard this, okay? So for us, we go, well, how would, this is a letter to this church in this specific place, this specific time, how would they have understood what Jesus is saying here? How would, he, how would they have understood this business of lukewarm and being spit out of his mouth? So a little thing about Laodicea, the city. 
They had every luxury they, they could ever need, right? But the one thing they lacked was this, clean drinking water. They just didn't have it. The water stank. It made people sick, right? History tells us that, that visitors would come to the city and he'd actually sick. <laughs> he was laughing at me the other day because I was saying like, no, just, you just drink the water wherever you go and you'll be fine. That's obviously not true. Um, no matter how strong my stomach is. But this is what was going on in Laodicea. They couldn't drink the water. It, was, it made you sick. It was stinking. But really close to Laodicea, there were two great sources of water, right? There was a place just six miles away called Hierapolis, and Hierapolis was, had these hot springs. It was like a spa, right? So they had these bathhouses, and people would go there for healing. You know, it's like getting in a hot tub when you have a sore back, that kind of thing. It's a hot spa. And then 10 miles to the east of Laodicea was Colossae. And Colossae had these springs of cold, pure drinking water. It was refreshing. It just came out of the ground ready to drink. But Laodicea had neither of these things. They, they had to pipe their water in from, from another hot spring six miles away in this, this old stone aqueduct. And so by the time it got to the city, it didn't have enough time to cool down to the point where you'd want to drink it. It was lukewarm. And going through all those old pipes, it, it, it got a stench. It was stinking. It was neither hot nor cold. It stank. It wasn't good for anything. It didn't have the healing properties of a hot spa. And it wasn't cold enough to provide refreshment. And the point that Jesus is making here is not that he would rather they weren't Christians at all. Is that Jesus is saying that both cold water and hot water have a purpose. Jesus is saying to the Laodiceans, you don't provide healing to spiritually sick people. And you're not providing refreshment to the spiritually weary. You're not doing anything. You're, you've become ineffective as a church. You have everything that you could ever wish for. I've given you every good resource, every good gift, and you're doing nothing with it. And because of that, you're like a bad taste in my mouth. And you wonder why is it Jesus felt this way? I, I think it's because of their pride. Because pride's the opposite of the gospel. And this church was full of pride. Look at their attitude in verse 17. They say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. They had stopped relying on Jesus. They were like, no, we got it made, we're sorted here. They thought they didn't need Jesus. They said, I need nothing. See, here's the thing, church. Something that terrifies me is that self-dependency is self-deception. When we start depending on ourselves, we're just deceiving ourselves. Because the Bible tells us that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. But yet in Christ, we can do all things through him who gives me strength. All things. John talks, or Jesus talks about this. Uh, this he, he, he represents himself as a, as a vine and, and us as the branches in John chapter 15. And he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, you don't have to be a horticultural expert. Erin's going to be a horticultural expert soon. That's going to be great. And she can verify this in a couple of years when she's graduated. But, I mean, you don't have to be a horticultural expert to know that if a branch is cut off from a tree, what's it going to do? It's going to dry up and it's going to die. You're not going to get any fruit off that. If I cut a tree off an apple branch, I'm not going to have apples. It doesn't get any nutrition. It just dries up. And so it is for us too. Once we separate, separate ourselves from Jesus... Well, we're just going to die. We're going to weather up. We're going to dry up. You see, we don't just come to Jesus for salvation and then walk away and try to do the rest on our own. No. 
We need to remain in Jesus because it's Jesus that saves us and Jesus that keeps us. Our church isn't going to survive if we don't keep depending on Jesus for everything. He's our source and he's our strength. He's our hope. He leads us and guides us. He protects us. He encourages us. We need him. He disciplines us. We need him for everything. Uh, there's an old hymn uh, called Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. Um, you, you know, if you're, if you're from a, a certain denomination, uh, you know, you'll, you'll traditional church, you'll know this. But uh, my great auntie on her wall had this uh, picture of, it was like uh, a, a, the, the hill of Calvary and three crosses on it said, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. Um, and I've, and I, it recently it just came into my Spotify playlist and I listened to it and I've had the, the words of one particular verse in my head ever since and, and it just sums up this dependence on Jesus. It says this, Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Vile I to the mountain fly. Fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. When we lose our dependence on Jesus, we're just losing the heart of the gospel. We need Jesus. Arrogance leads to apathy. Comfort leads to complacency. They were lukewarm. They had lost their passion. They had lost their spark for Jesus. And it's funny how, they, how Jesus sees them as a complete contrast to how they see, see themselves. Uh, self-awareness is, is a really hard thing, isn't it? Right? We can be completely misguided about where we are or what we're doing. You just have to live with another human being to realize that. But Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves. And, and we can easily deceive other people, right? But uh, we can even deceive ourselves, but we can't deceive Jesus, right? No, no matter, he has these eyes like flames of fire, this penetrating gaze, Revelation chapter 1 tells us. And, and no, matter, no matter how carefully we curate and craft these Instagram posts that make our lives look just perfect and we appear the way people want to see us, Jesus sees through that. Hashtag no filter. <laughs> Jesus doesn't have any filters. He sees through that. It doesn't matter what filters you put up. Jesus, this church sees themselves as doing okay and, and Jesus sees them doing the complete opposite. He uses five words. He says, firstly, they're wretched. This just means that they're, it literally means they're enduring great hardship. They don't seem like a church that's enduring hardship, do they? They don't see themselves that way. They say they need nothing. They're rich. They've prospered. And Jesus says, you're not well off. You're enduring hardship. You're miserable. He says that they're pitiable. Isn't that interesting? Because they would have been, they would have been a proud church. They were well off. They would probably have pitied other people who needed financial help. It's interesting that Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if our hope, if our hope in Christ is for this life only, then we are to, of all people to be most pitied. Just hoping in this life. If our hope is only for this life, then, 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 we've, then we're to be pitied. We have nothing. Jesus says they're pitiful. He also says they're poor. Can you imagine how that must have stung them? Because they're like, Are you, I mean, have you seen my house, Jesus? You see my car? You see my TVs? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not purr. Um, it's a cliche, but you can't take your wealth with you. Uh, recently, just, I don't know, last weekend or, or the other day, we were, there was a documentary on Channel 4 about these, these uh, tombs of ancient Egypt and, and the pharaohs, these wealthy pharaohs would get buried with uh, gold and statues and weaponry and all this stuff and it was a way of ensuring that when they went into the afterlife that they would carry their status with them that they'd be well catered for they would enter into the afterlife and people would say oh he's an important person but the thing is 
Thousands of years later, they're opening these tombs and the gold's all there and all that's left of the person is a dry, dusty old mummy, right? Putting security in wealth in this life is, is not smart. And we're going to come back to that later on. They were blind as well in this city that was known for healing eyes. They, 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 they were actually blind. They, 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 Jesus says, you don't realize that you are these things. You're not realizing what you're like. And they were naked in a city that boasted of its textile industry and, and how good quality and, and fashionable their clothes were. He says, you're naked. In all these things, Jesus speaks in terms that they understand and in and, and ways that they would understand what he's saying. I wonder if Jesus is, looks at us this morning, how he would describe us and how we would describe ourselves. It's challenging, isn't it? And so imagine if that was the end of the sermon. <laughs> imagine if Jesus was like, sign off, Jesus. That'd be a depressing Sunday morning. <laughs> but he doesn't, does he? Thankfully, he goes on and he gives them his appropriate exhortation, his call to action. Um, I love this. Jesus doesn't expose their faults and then leave them to it, right? Jesus never does that with us because he loves us. Um, look at verse 19. Jesus says, to those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. It's because Jesus loves us that he both reproves us and disciplines us. Reprove just means to expose our faults, right? That's what reproof is. It's like, look at where you've gone wrong. But he doesn't just do that. He, he then disciplines us. This word discipline is like disciple. It's, it's he teaches us, he leads us, he instructs us. He doesn't just show us our sinfulness and then leave us to our sinfulness. He says, this is where you've gone wrong. Let me show you how to get it right. Let me show you where you've gone wrong. Let me lead you. Like a bad parent is just a bad parent. That just, a bad parent is a parent that just gets angry because the kid's done something wrong. A good parent is one that explains why they got cross and then teaches the kid how to do things better. And this is how Jesus loves us. And Jesus says, you need me. You've forgotten you need me. And let me show you five things, five things that you need from me. Firstly, we need Christ's riches. Um, verse 18, Jesus says, uh, I counsel you to buy gold from me, refined by fire, so that you may be rich. Right? In this city of trade, Jesus uh, actually, he's like, I'm like a trader, and I'm coming with all these things, and you need to buy these things from me. This language of gold purified with fire, it's all over the Bible, and, and it's like when they would heat up gold and, and burn off all the impurities, and what you're left with is pure gold. And this is the kind of gold that Jesus offers us. Not, not, not physical gold, but, but this treasure of knowing Jesus. This, this treasure uh, of enjoying Jesus. It can't ever fade. It can't be stolen. Like, you're not like the pharaohs that you lose it when you die. In fact, when we die, we actually step into the fullness of our treasure. Isn't that incredible that Jesus has redeemed even death so that in death, we step into the fullness of his treasure for us? Isn't that amazing? Jesus says, treasure me and you'll be rich. Secondly, we need his righteousness. This is what he means by the, the white garments in verse 18 when he says, you know, and buy for me white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. These people took pride in their appearance, but Jesus says that the only garment that matters is the garment that he gives us, right? We saw this in, in the letter to Sardis. See, Someday, we're all going to stand before Jesus, and he's going to be judging us. And, 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 it, and if we're not wearing the righteousness of Jesus, you may as well be naked. That's what he's saying. You could be 
standing before Jesus in, a, um, I don't know, a Versace ball gown or wearing a black bin liner. But it won't matter if you're not clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. This is what he means. Clothe yourself in, in his white garments. These white garments represent his righteousness. You see, this is what, this is, this is what the gospel is. It, it, he gives us his righteousness and drapes it over us. We're covered in it. We wear his righteousness. So when God sees us, he doesn't see our sinfulness and our failures. He sees the righteousness of Jesus. It's called the imputation of righteousness. And, and it's, an, it's an amazing thing. It's the only the really clothing that matters. Thirdly then, we need his remedy. We need his riches. Oh, we need his righteousness. And we need his remedy. Jesus says, and salve to anoint your eyes that you may, you may see. Quite simply, we're blind. We're blind without Jesus. And when we stop depending on him, we lose our sight, right? When we stop reading the Bible, how are we going to see, uh, how are we going to see what's really going on in our lives? We need this sight that depending on Jesus gives us. Fourthly, we need his rebuke. We need his riches we need his riches, we need his righteousness, we need his remedy, and we need his rebuke. Um, if you're unlike me, you hate being told off. You don't want to be rebuked. You hate when you're told that you've done something wrong. I, I, you know, I find that really hard. Some of you, you're, you're probably all more righteous than I am, and it's just me, but just something gets my back up when people say, oh, you're, you know, you've done this wrong. But we need Jesus. We need him to tell us where we're going wrong. You see, Jesus speaks the truth to his church because he loves her. We're, we're his bride, we're his children, and he, he shows us where we're going wrong, just like I, I want to be a good parent and, and, and teach my children where they're going wrong. It's easy to see this letter negatively, but I love it. I love this letter, and here's why. Because in this letter, we see so clearly that Jesus loves his church too much to let it go. Right? This, the first half of this letter, all these things, you make me want to vomit. He could have just abandoned this church because they had abandoned him. But Jesus doesn't do that, right? It's the same for us. Jesus loves you too much to let you go. He lo- and maybe, maybe you've let your faith slip. Maybe you're like me and you let your faith slip every day. Maybe you live like Jesus doesn't exist. Maybe you've grown apathetic or maybe you've grown lazy or tired. Or maybe you're just hurting too much to find faith in Jesus right now. But he loves you too much to let you go. That's the gospel. That we, When we can't hold on to him, he holds on to us. See, this letter isn't a telling off. It's an invitation. It's an invitation. And Jesus calling, calling these people back to himself. Be zealous and repent, Jesus says. He says, be zealous and repent. Being zealous is the opposite of being lukewarm. Being zealous is being earnest and eager. Uh, there's almost an urgency to it. And he's like, he says, I'm not looking for some half-hearted apology. It's not just about a prayer, confession, and getting back to business. This is genuine repentance. It's about realizing your wrongdoing and not just saying sorry, but actually changing your way. The word here literally means to change any or all of the elements composing one's life. You're going to change something. And because he loves us, he calls us to this, and he's never going to give up on us. Jesus will not give up on you. He loves you too much to let you go. Isn't that incredible? When you feel like you can't hold on to him, he's holding on to you. Fifthly then, 
And we're nearly done. Uh, we need his renewal. We need his renewal. Verse 20 tells us that Jesus stands at the door and knocks. And, and this is another one of those often misunderstood verses, I think, uh, that, that, that we, we often hear this taught as like Jesus speaking to unbelievers, but he's not, is he? He's writing to a church. And specifically, he's writing to this church that is trying to exist without him. So he's knocking at the door. Let me in. You've forgotten about me. I'm here. And, and in his kindness, when they open the door, and let him in, he's not going to come in with a big guilt stick and beat them with it. No, what does it say? I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Jesus wants to sit down and have dinner with you. I love this imagery because in the ancient Near Eastern culture, um, eating with your enemies was a sign of reconciliation. Eating with people is a sign of, of communion, right? It's one of the symbolisms I love most about a communion meal that Jesus eats with us, his former enemies, is a sign of reconciliation. And as a way of reconciling with this church that had rejected him, he said, I want to eat with you to show that there's no enmity here anymore. I love you too much to let you go. Let me come in and lay the table and sit down with you. He doesn't want to just save us. He wants to have fellowship with us. Um, I came across this week and, and I thought I could write something. But, you know, John Piper puts it this way, and I'll just leave you with this because he puts it way better than I ever could. He says, Christ did not die to redeem a bride who would keep him on the porch while she sat and watched television in the den. His will for the church is that we open the door, all the doors of our lives. He wants to join you in the dining room, spread a meal out for you and eat with you and talk with you. The opposite of lukewarmness is the fervor you experience when you enjoy a candlelit dinner with Jesus Christ in the innermost room of your heart. And when Jesus Christ, the source of all God's creation, is dining with you in your heart, then you have all the gold, all the garments, and all the medicine in the world. We need to open the door of our hearts. Jesus is standing there knocking. He, he, he desires more than just a, a, a cursory glance in his direction every now and again. Not so he can beat us with guilt, but so that we can enjoy his company, enjoy all the things that he has for us. Finally, Jesus finishes with this awe-inspiring conclusion. I, I, this is why I love this letter as well. Um, he gives us this incentive to be zealous and repent. He, he gives us this incentive to never stop depending on him, right? In verses 21 and 22, he says, the one who conquers. We're gonna look at conquering next week. It's the theme that's across all these letters. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me in my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Wow. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You see, if we conquer in this way, uh, we'll sit, we will sit with Jesus on his throne in heaven. Right? The, the, the Bible has the, the concept of throne, the throne of God. It develops in three stages, if you like, throughout biblical history. The first stage in the Old Testament is, is Yahweh, is, is the Lord God sitting on his throne. In the New Testament, then we start to, it starts to develop more, and we see the Son of Man, Jesus, sitting on that throne. And then here we get to the third stage, which is the victorious saints, me and you, in Jesus, sharing his throne. Jesus says this in Matthew 19. He says, Truly I tell you, in the new world, when the Son of Man, that's him, sits on his glorious throne, you have followed me, will sit on 12 thrones. That, he's talking to his 12 disciples, and he's saying, You followed me, and you're also going to sit on the throne. 2 Timothy 2.12 tells us that if we endure, we will also reign with him. Do you know what this is? This is our union with Christ. 
We've been united with Christ. He, he, he became flesh and blood to be with us. He died and rose again to be with us. We have been united with him. And all the benefits that God has bestowed on Jesus, all the benefits, all the glory that God gives to Jesus, that's ours now too because Jesus makes himself one with us. And because we have, because we unite with Jesus, we have a victory. That's, you know, that's what he says. Like We're going to share in his victory just as he conquered and sat down with his father on the throne. We're one with him, we've died with him, we've been raised with him, and we will reign with him. I don't deserve that. You don't deserve that. But that's the grace of Jesus. Infinitely, infinitely, infinitely more than we deserve, right? The grace of Jesus. This is why Jesus died, so that we could be united with him and share in this victory. Christus victor. The Christians in Latin language used to say, Christus victor, Christ the victorious. So that we could be united with him and share in his victory. See, I was thinking about this this week. The cross looks like defeat, doesn't it? The, the Jews who killed him certainly thought that. The cross looks like defeat. But the cross is actually victory. Because when he, the only way he could defeat sin and death was by submitting himself to death. He had to, in that sense, fully immerse himself in the battle with it so that he could be victorious over it. And he defeats death. How do we know that? Because he didn't stay dead. So it's a victory. He proved that death had no hold on him. And because he has united himself to us, death has no hold on us either, right? So you're going to die someday. <laughs> that's, a, that's a physical fact. But you, if you're in Jesus, if you're trusting in Jesus, then you will never die. And just as Jesus is glorified by sitting on a throne, if we endure, we will share in that glory too. So what does all this mean for us this morning? And I'm definitely finished now. Maybe, maybe you need to repent and be, zeal be zealous and repent. Maybe, I think we all need to hear that invitation, that call of Jesus, come back to me, depend on me. Your faith doesn't have to be strong. You don't have to hold on to me. I'm holding on to you. Maybe, maybe we find ourselves just trying to be a Christian without Christ. Trying to live a, a Christian lifestyle without Jesus. It just doesn't make sense. Jesus is just knocking on the door. He's standing on the doorstep, knocking on the door. He said, please let me come in. You need me and I want to make a meal for you and I want to sit down and have fellowship with you and share some good wine and good fun and, and good enjoyment and good company with you. I want to be intimate with you. He wants to know you. Jesus wants to know you. And, and maybe you need to just say, if that's where you're at this morning, I, I, it's probably where all of us are at on some level. Maybe we just need to say, Lord Jesus, I'm sorry for trying to live without you. I'm sorry for trying to be a Christian without Christ. I need you. And Lord, I just open the door of my heart to you and thank you for never letting me go. My prayer is that we would never stop depending on Jesus. All we have is Jesus and without him, we're gonna, we can do nothing. But the good news is, that Jesus loves us too much to never let us go. So let's not lose our dependence on Jesus so that we cannot lose the heart of the gospel. Let me pray.